Well, it is so good to be back here at South. We had an opportunity to uh, take some time away, which was great for us. And I was able to watch the missions conference to hear Paul speak and then Tim and Keith and uh, follow along those great messages and the emphasis that was made. Uh, this is an unusual missions conference. Never have done anything like this before. But I think it's gone well from all I hear and your participation and involvement has been tremendous. And maybe in some ways, as God changes our process, as God changes our schedule, we find new and different ways to connect with one another and perhaps even more efficient and effective ways come out of this challenging time so that we can continue to be a church that focuses on holding forth the word of life in a crooked and in a perverse generation, as it says in the old translation of the King James. I think one of the most amazing missional statements in all the Bible is this simple statement from 2 Corinthians 5. Don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Now, to get the context for that statement, uh, we need to understand that the Apostle Paul had visited, his very first visit, to the city of Corinth was somewhere around 50 A.D. And he spent a year and a half in this great metropolitan city. It was said that Corinth, because it was a prosperous seaport town, was always wealthy and always great. The population was a little less than a million. And in that day, it seemed to be at the center of the universe, maybe much like New York City. Always great, always wealthy, and always carnal to the core. The very name Corinth is used as a verb to speak of immorality. And when you visit the, visit the ancient ruins of Corinth today, you'll be taken into a museum where they found artifacts that prove the immorality so prevalent in that particular city. Above the city, there's a hill, the Acro Corinth. And there was a temple with a thousand prostitutes that would come down from the temple and ply their wares and, and do their trade in the midst of the city, thinking of all the seaport people who are coming in and looking for relief from a heavy journey. And in this setting, the Apostle Paul established a church. It was three or four years later that he wrote what we call 2 Corinthians. He actually wrote a couple other letters that we don't have record of. That's God's choosing. But we notice that in 1 Corinthians, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with church problems. In the letter we call 2 Corinthians, the people thought that Paul was the problem. It is amazing to me how they so quickly turned on the Apostle Paul. You don't need to jot these down, but simply let me mention some of the criticisms that came his way as we read through 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, they said he was worldly and did not have real commitment. In chapter 1, verse 23, he lacked moral courage. In chapter 4, 16, he lacked inner strength. Chapter 4, verse 2, they said he was theologically deviant. 6, 8, an imposter. 7, 2, corrupt. 
in chapter 10 that he was weak when he was present with them, but very abusive in his letters when he was away. He was a tyrant. And in chapter 12, Paul lacked the miraculous credentials of a true apostle, they said. Recent visits by a couple of well-known teachers had caught their attention. Many in the city, according to 1 Corinthians, uh, preferred Peter. He was a Palestinian Jew, one of the earlier followers of Jesus. He was there right at the beginning when Jesus formed his group. And there were those who said, we choose Cephas. We like Peter better. And then there was the Alexandrian Jew by the name of Apollos. Keen intellect, great oratorial skills, and people, especially the educated Greeks, members of the church, love that approach. Love the knowledge that he brought to the gospel, and some say we choose Apollos. And compared with those, Paul looked like an amateur. His speaking was not all that great, his presence was impressive and unimpressive and well, Paul was having a rough time. So in 2 Corinthians, you can follow the, the strain of it all on the Apostle Paul. Emotionally, they seem, he seems to go up and down so often. And in this book, he explains and defends his ministry and explains and defends his gospel. The heart of it. Sometimes, difficult times, produce some of the greatest works the world has ever seen. I remind you of John Bunyan, that wonderful tinker of Bedford, that preacher so simple, so humble, when he was in prison, wrote the book that became a classic, even to non-believers, Pilgrim's Progress. And so while under pressure, and maybe this is true of us in COVID, under pressure, God wants to do something with us that he's never done with us before that will turn out to be outstanding and amazing. And what Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is give us one of the greatest explanations of the death of Jesus Christ. One of the clearest and most powerful statements of the gospel. Now, you have to remember that Paul becomes very autobiographical when he writes his letters. And we need to remember that before Paul came to Christ, he hated Christ. Remember that? He went everywhere all over the then-known world to try to imprison Christians and kill them. In fact, he thought he was doing God a favor when he eliminated Christians. Hated Jesus. Thought he was a blasphemer. Merely a man, a meddler, who was trying to draw disciples after himself against the religion of the day. And Paul did everything he could to eliminate the name of Jesus Christ. But then, while on the road to the city of Damascus, Paul had an encounter with the living Christ. I'm sure Paul had seen Jesus in Jerusalem and in viewing him and watching him thought he was a phony and a fraud, merely a sham, just a human being. But now, now he sees the resurrected Christ and he, 
hears the love of God for him and Paul is radically changed. So if you have your Bibles and you're open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul begins to talk a little bit about the defense of the gospel and his radical change of life. This is verse 14, or excuse me, verse 11. Paul said, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Having met Jesus Christ, Paul is radically changed and now says in verse 14, instead of heavy hating Christ, he's compelled by the love of Christ. For the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore, all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now, Paul says in verse 16, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. We looked at Christ that way once as merely a human being, and we got it all wrong. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. And Paul's mindset from meeting Jesus Christ has been radically changed. How so? Well, first of all, he views believers as new creatures in Christ, including himself. This is verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation, the old has gone. And in the language of the original, it's very emphatic. It speaks of a definite moment in the past. And the new has arrived. It's here. The new has come. Whereas the old is gone speaks of something that happened and now it's done. The new has come speaks about something that has definitely happened but has ongoing, continuing results. The old man is gone, Paul said, and the new has come. The old way of thinking is gone about Christ, merely after the flesh. And a whole new world perspective has taken hold of my heart. The Apostle Paul was radically changed when he came to Christ. He talks about the radical change in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but the, the, it's a wonderful portion of Scripture that talks about the fact that we used to follow the ways of the world, controlled by the God of the world, ever living for the cravings of our sinful heart. We were indeed under God's judgment, objects of his wrath. But then God stepped in because of his great love for us and his rich mercy toward us. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ and by grace 
we are saved. And then he says in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's that word created, creation, creature. We're new creatures. Newly created. That's a radical change. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. We've been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see this idea of trusting Christ as your Savior, of being born again, of getting saved, some of the terms that we use, is not just a decision of the mind that touches nothing else in the life. It is a radical change, and it starts in the heart, and it's the work of God, and it ends up being evident in the life. We are new creatures and Paul says I, I don't view believers like I used to as a nuisance someone to be eliminated I view them as new creatures in Christ Jesus when the gears of a clock move on the inside the hands of the clock move on the outside and when the Spirit of God touches your heart with grace on the inside the countenance and deeds and words on the outside began to move in a totally different direction. The old is gone and the new has come. There's a Christian philosopher, psychologist by the name of Neil Anderson. And something he once stated really struck me. He said this, if we really knew God, our behavior would change radically and instantly. That's what happens in Scripture, like to the Apostle Paul. Individual witnesses who saw the grace of God and the glory of God were profoundly changed. And I believe that the greatest determinant of mental and spiritual health and freedom is a true understanding of God and a right relationship with Him. He's not saying that that's all that there is when people have issues with mental health. When people have doubts of the assurance of their salvation. Or they're struggling, struggling spiritually. He simply says one of the greatest things that can improve and change these situations is a true understanding with God. And a right relationship with him. And then he makes this incredible statement. A good theology is an in indispensable prerequisite to a good psychology. If you, need to, if you want to think straight, you've got to believe the truth. Everything has to come from the framework of truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth. Everything filtered through the truth. So there's this radical change of heart and mind in our lives. I like the testimony that a new believer gave. You know, sometimes we expect new believers to know way too much at the beginning of their conversion. We really do. I mean, we want them to learn everything that we've learned over years, and we try to pour it all into them at once, and, and if they don't get it, we get discouraged. But sometimes new believers give the greatest testimonies of genuine conversion, like this gal who was put on the spot I think she was trying to become a member of a church and some people were grilling her about her theology and this is what she said. How do I know, I know I'm a Christian? She said, well, I used to run after sin 
and now I run away from it. That's a great testimony. I used to run towards sin, and now I run away from it. Well, things are different now because we are new creatures in Christ. And that's how we need to view every believer as a child of God, as a new creature in Christ. We need to see ourselves that way and also the world of believers. But notice Paul also tells us that he had a new view of God. A new view of believers, they're new creatures in Christ, and there's a radical change in their life. But now, secondly, the new view of God. He sees God as reconciling people to himself. I guess I forgot to mention a point. I better mention it or we won't be able to go on in the outline. And that is back to new believers or viewing believers Christ died for everyone. His death was for everyone. And now I'm messing up those who are doing the outline in a horrible way. See what happens when you're gone for three weeks? It's not their fault. It's my fault. I was just going to mention the fact that verse 17 says, if anyone is in new Christ, is in Christ, they are new creation. And if you go back to verse 14, he died for all. So that those who live, those who live is a subset of the fact that he died for all. And now we view God, Paul says, from a different perspective. We used to think that he was antagonistic with Christ. But now we see him as reconciling the world through Christ. What's the meaning of the word reconciliation? It's used five times. Verse 18 and 19. Verse 20. Reconciled, it means to mend that which is broken. It means to settle a conflict, to restore friendly relationships between those who have had a separation. It's the opposite of alienation and estrangement. You see, what is implied in the good news of the gospel is the bad news of the fall of man. That mankind has chosen to go their own sinful way. To rebel against the God of heaven who made us. And the effects of the fall are horrible. Not only do we begin to have insecurity problems of fear and and confidence and confusion. and, And all kinds of lies become our worldview. We're separated from God. The definition of lost is separated from God. The definition of death is separated from God. And so Paul said we viewed Christ as simply getting in the way of this wonderful Jewish religion we had of sacrifices and works and laws and regulations. And now Christ comes in. But Paul says now I see that God is reconciling the world Through Christ, verse 18. All of this comes from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. 
So the alienation that exists in the world from the God who created all people is actively being pursued by God himself. Sometimes people divide the love of Jesus and the wrath of God the Father as, they never, as though they never work together. And sometimes you'll even hear people say that the wrath of God has been appeased by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense that indeed is true, but it's not the whole story. God takes the initiative and sends his son. This is all from God. And God, verse 19, is reconciling the world to himself. That's his goal. That's his purpose. All will not be reconciled because they don't trust in Christ. But that's what God is all about. That's what God is doing right now. That's why the world has not come to an end. You see, out of great love, the Father sent the Son, John 3.16. It was the Father's initiative. We love Him because He first loved us. It's the Father's initiative to love a fallen, sinful race. Is he a God of justice? Yes. That's why he must be reconciled. He cannot overlook sin nor forget it. It must somehow be satisfied. And how does he do that? Look at verse 21. Here's the path to reconciliation. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be a sin offering for us. That's the path of reconciliation. The sinless one becomes sinful. God treats Jesus as though he committed every act of sin that was placed upon him. For the thief, he becomes a thief. For the murderer, he becomes a murderer. For the immoral, he takes on immorality as though he committed the sin himself. And he dies not for his own sin. He's sinless. But he dies for your sin and mine. Why? So that our God could be reconciled. We could be reconciled to him. That's the way the great hymn goes. My God has reconciled his pardoning voice, I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Because Jesus stood in my place on the cross, I will stand in his place in glory forever. My sin becomes his, his righteousness becomes mine, and now, I'm reconciled to God. And look at this. Verse 19. He's not counting our sins against us. That's Psalm 32. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute, count iniquity. That's what it says in, in uh, the Psalms, that, that God does not take a record of our sin, keep a record of our sin. If he did, none of us would stand. But Christ wipes them out. And now we're at peace with God. 
Offending God was our work. Appeasing God was Christ's work. And by faith, when we trust him, we are eternally saved. So Paul says, I view God now in a different way. Not according <laughs> to a, a carnal perspective, a fleshly perspective. I see that all believers in Christ are new creatures. I see that God is reconciling the whole world to himself through Jesus. And here's the third thing. I now have a different view of the world. The New Living Translation says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We do that all the time, don't we? What's your name? Where are you from? Your citizenship, your nationality, your height, your weight, your financial bank account, your, you know, uh, athletic abilities, your, well, your status. And we want to know all these things and we evaluate people from the outside. And Paul says, I'm going to stop doing that. I'll regard no one after the flesh. So Paul, how do you then see the world as alienated from God? And they need to be reconciled. God, verse 19, is reconciling the world to himself. When they believe, not counting people's sins against them. And get this, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's a missional statement. Earlier in verse 18, he has given us the ministry of of reconciliation. Now you might say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. That's the duty of a full-time preacher. They're supposed to get out there and preach and share this message, and that is indeed true. Maybe it's primary emphasis, but clearly the Scripture tells us that the church is to be a missionary church. Philippians chapter 2, the portion that Pastor Doug read, talks about caring for Paul as a missionary and giving so that the gospel might flow through his energy and his activities and their partners in the work so that whatever Paul does by way of seeing people come to Christ is credited to the account of the Philippians because they were praying and they were giving. But that doesn't get them off the hook. For Paul says to them in chapter 2, you are living in this wicked generation. How much time do I need to spend to convince you that we are living in a wicked generation? Okay, I won't. It's obvious. But we need to be blameless, Philippians 2.15 says, and harmless as sons of God. So then in the midst of this crooked world, this perverse nation, we would shine as lights. So in the midst of darkness, our lights will shine as we hold forth the word of life. What is the word of life? It's what we've been looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And when we believe, he doesn't count our sins against us. And the one who died for us is our Savior. And now he's given to us the responsibility of sharing the good news with others. 
So our view of the world has radically changed. We see people as those who desperately need Jesus. And now we want to urgently implore them and appeal to them. Notice the language, verse 20. We're making an appeal. It's God speaking through us. That's missions. God speaking through reconciled individuals. Giving the message to others that their sins can be forgiven. And we do it with an appeal. And we do it imploring. I think sometimes our approach in missions is all wrong. You know, Christians shouldn't hate anybody. But in the midst of this political time, I think some Christians are hating people because they differ with them. I think we give the impression that simply because someone is not living a righteous life, we would just as soon dispose of them. That's a view from a worldly point of view. But when you see that those people belong to Jesus Christ, that Christ died for them, verse 14. That God is seeking to reconcile them by the death of his son. We now view them as people who need Christ. And we need to implore them. We need to beg them and love them to the cross. Did you notice two therefores? Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. And verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Those who are in Christ are to be ambassadors for Christ. The conclusion of faith in Christ is reconciliation to God. Therefore, we're new creatures. The conclusion of being reconciled to God is that we are now, therefore, ambassadors. We've got to look at life from a whole new standpoint. Not after the flesh anymore. We need to do all we can to share the simple message, but the powerful message that Jesus died. And he longs to reconcile the world to himself. It's interesting, in the Roman Empire at this time, there were two kinds of provinces under their care. The one might be called a senatorial province. This is a province where uh, they willingly gave themselves to Rome. They were loyal citizens. They were in on the whole Roman Empire thing. They surrendered. They were submissive. They were proud to be Roman citizens. The senatorial. Uh, the senatorial province. But the other province was an imperial province. These are sections of the world that Rome conquered. And they would rebel if they could. But Rome stayed there with a military force to keep them submissive. To hold them under their control. Forcibly in compliance. And they did that with a military force. And by sending ambassadors to those areas. The ambassador was representing the empire and seeking to bring about peace in the midst of a hostile environment. And you and I 
are ambassadors of Jesus Christ with the message of reconciliation. We can't make people believe it, but by the grace of God, we must tell it. If you're a new creature in Christ, you must share the gospel message. What a privilege. What a glory. Let's pray. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Oh Lord, I pray that people here who don't know Christ might trust him. And that those who do would serve him as ambassadors. Let's take a moment to deal with God. Whatever he's urging you to do, maybe it's to trust him. Maybe it's to commit to serve him, to be a missionary where God has called you, to support missions, to go if that's his calling on your life. Because thus we judge. If one died for all, then all were dead, and those who live should henceforth no longer live to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ compels us. Take a moment, a moment of silent prayer. Speak to God.